You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 218, Rachel Joy Welcher and the Spirituality of Unmet Longings. Welcome back to another episode of Halfway There. I'm so glad that you are here. I, of course, am your host, Eric Nevins, and this is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. We love to dive into the spiritual journey, um, and if you want to know more about that, just go to halfwaytherepodcast.com. You can find our show notes. You can sign up to support us on Patreon if you want to just keep the show running. That helps us pay for all the expenses that go along with podcasting. And uh, Or you could just sign up for the mailing list. We'd love to be able to send you notes about each and every episode that no one else sees. So we'd love to, love to get you on there. Today we have a really great conversation. Been looking forward to it. Our guest is an editor at Fathom Magazine. She's a poet, so I'm sure we'll have to talk about that. And she's an author of a new book called Talking Back to Purity Culture, Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality, which uh, I think is definitely a need. Our guest is Rachel Welcher. Rachel, welcome to Halfway There. Great to be here. <laughs> I am excited to have this conversation. So I've been following you on Twitter for a while, which is uh, which is where I found you. I've been finding more and more people there. I'm, I, I guess I've been attracted to the dumpster fire. I don't know. That's good. Yeah, Twitter's <laughs> an interesting place. It can be um, horrible and horrifying, but it's also been a place that I've made some really wonderful friendships and connections. So I have kind of mixed feelings about it, but I'm still there. It's kind of like real life, isn't it? You can make good connections. You can make bad connections. Yeah. Anyway, that's good. So folks, you should definitely follow Rachel on Twitter. Um, Okay. So Rachel, I want to just, I give that sort of broad, you know, introduction about who you are, but tell us a little more about who you are and where God has you right now. Well, where God has me right now is in a small town in Iowa. I am a pastor's wife. My husband is, um, I tell people he's a mix between Fred Rogers and Ron Swanson. Um, (laughs) He's an incredibly humble man um, who preaches the gospel faithfully, and he preaches it to hearts that he knows are hurting um, because he has endured loss. Um, He was a widow when I met him, and so his wife, his first wife, had cancer and passed away, and he he cared for her till the very end. Um, So he and I met through our writing. Actually, we met on Twitter. Oh, wow. Twitter. There you go. Um, yeah, we started talking there, and I'd just been um, going through a divorce and my own pain of being um, left by my husband. And so um, we ended up falling in love, and I moved here to be with him and his church. And um, I can work from the church or my couch because I'm a writer. I can really work from anywhere. So, um it made transitioning here easier. <laughs> yeah. Out, out into the middle of Iowa. That's uh, well. Yes. We, we mentioned it earlier, but I don't know. I, our friends probably know who are listening. I grew up in Iowa. So grew up in Des Moines. So that sort of rural nice. area is, uh, is kind of, even though we don't get back there very often, nothing soothes the soul like a long line of cornfields for me. Mm, <laughs> you know what I mean? It is really beautiful. It, it is. really is. Yeah, it is. It, you see the waves, you know, the when the wind blows and it all kind of. Oh, yeah. Oh, that's absolutely. It's, uh, I guess, the older I get. When I was 16, I didn't think that was beautiful. But when I, as I get older, I do. <laughs> so, yeah, absolutely. So, you, did you ever think you'd end up in Iowa? No, <laughs> absolutely <laughs> not. And actually, I think when we first started talking, my husband and I, I had said something to the effect of, I'm not moving to Iowa. But, you know, anytime you tell God that you're not going to do something, <laughs> Sometimes it seems like he gets a a kick out of putting you exactly in that place. So I'm actually very happy here. Um, We've got a sweet old dog named Frank, and we live in an old house that I love. I have a garden this year. Things actually grow here as opposed to California where I'm from. I was never able to successfully grow a tomato, but (laughs) um, I have 20 tomato plants this year, and they're right? just going crazy. <laughs> Isn't it amazing? It's so like, yeah, that black soil will just, uh, it'll grow anything. It's, it's That Iowa soil, it's magic. Ooh, it is unbelievable. That's why I'm so cool, I like to think. Anyway, all right. There so, <laughs> <laughs> um, Rachel, I want to hear more about your story. So you mentioned you grew up in California. What part? 
Um, Northern California, about 40 minutes from Napa. Okay. So I actually grew up in a super small town in Northern California um, called Middletown. And my dad was and is still a pastor there. So I'm a PK. Yeah. And that has been part of my story for sure. And now I'm a pastor's wife, which I didn't think I would end up um, being a pastor's wife either. But again, God, God knows what he wants for our lives. Indeed. Okay. So you grew up as a pastor's kid, which, uh, so I always like to ask it this way. Were you one of the little, uh, the, the little Hellion pastor's kids or were you, uh, <laughs> what was that like for you? You know, um, I've got a sister and two brothers. I think the brothers had the Hellion side covered. <laughs> um, no, they're, they're good, but, um, no, I actually, I was more of a goody goody. Um, really wanted to please the um, authorities in my life. And um, so did the whole Awana yeah. school, Christian school, um, pretty much followed all the rules, um, in, at least, you know, visibly. Mm -hmm. And um, that was, that's something I don't regret. I'm, I'm really thankful that God saved me from myself from making some big mistakes. But as we all know, um, doing the right things doesn't necessarily mean you have a spiritual um, life, inner life. And so um, becoming a Christian was, a, you know, separate from that. Um, something that happened around age 11 and 12 for me. Um, yeah, well, tell us that story. So I'm not one of those um, Christians that has the kind of specific moment you know, marked on their calendar that yeah. they celebrate um, because I grew up knowing the gospel and I, I believed it. I never um, rejected the truth of God's existence. Um, but it was a matter for me of taking these things I'd been told and that I could recite to anyone who asked um, and actually making them a part of my heart. And so I remember that I had to read my Bible as a part of homeschool curriculum. And I remember doing that through gritted teeth for a long time. Um, it was just something I had to do to check off the list. And something changed when I um, started getting into youth group, um, going to summer camps and hearing the messages. I realized that um, I could pray to God on my own, not just at the set times, right in church before dinner. And I started having an actual relationship with Christ on my own. Um, and there's a lot more to my story after that, but yeah, God has held on to me ever since age 11 and has never let me go. Wow, I love that. How did you realize that? Was it just like a, it just dawned on you one day or what? You know, I don't know. I feel like for me, it was a very slow growing thing because, um, it was, you know, that maybe this is a trite phrase, but you have to make your faith your own. Yeah. Um, it, I kind of grew into that where I realized that it wasn't just a performative thing, um, right. but that I could talk to God and read the Bible and actually interact with him, even if no one could see what I was doing. Um, and in fact, that that was where the true spirituality took place. Um, and so I do remember at summer camp, um, they showed a Jesus video, oh, yeah. <laughs> which is so funny because that's not how I would go about it now, but I remember watching, um, you know, a performance of um, someone playing Jesus dying on the cross and just sobbing and realizing um, that Jesus had done that for me. Yeah. And it's funny because the things that often draw us are not necessarily the methods that we would use. Um, they're not even necessarily theologically solid means, <laughs> but God, God can draw us in so many ways. And so it was this kind of corny Jesus video that really really sort of gave me that moment yeah. that people talk about. Man, I love that. Yeah, you know what I was thinking about yesterday is, do you remember, we were at a youth event one time, and do you remember um, Secret Ambition by Michael W. Smith? Do you remember that song? You might be a little younger than me, but. I definitely listened to him, but I'm, I'd have to hear oh, it to man. remember. <laughs> it was like, yeah, no, anyway, it was it was funny. And the whole video was Jesus, you know, being crucified. It funny but oh, but that okay. like song i was like oh singing it and i was like annoyed that i was singing it in my head <laughs> but it was it was uh it just came back and i was like oh that's one of those things right that that had an impression on you when you're young and so i totally yeah. relate to that 
Um, Absolutely. Very interesting. Okay. So yeah. And I, I don't think it has to be like a one event or anything like that. Totally. I, I know that right. it, it comes, God works in lots of ways. And so that's what we're trying to share here. Um, Absolutely. Love that. Very interesting. Okay. So you kind of made it your own or kind of started to realize, Oh, God is, God is definitely, uh, I can relate to him on my terms, not on, or maybe on different terms than what you were given, right? That mm-hmm. performative. I love that word. Um, what happened after that? How did that grow in you? Well, I, I feel like for years I had a very blessed life. Um, and I really didn't encounter true suffering until I was in my late twenties. And so I definitely had trials within my family and friendships and, um, deaths that weren't super close to me, but you know, that affected me. Um, but in general, I, I sort of had, uh, that faith where, um, or that, that life that when Satan's talking to God about Job, he says, you know, Job follows you and trusts you because he has everything. Right. Um, and so that was kind of me where it was like, I had a strong faith, but I also, it hadn't been tested. And so I would say that it wasn't until, um, after five years into my first marriage that, that my faith was really tested and that I had to kind of deal with, um, that crisis of faith and the, the pull to reject the gospel, um, for the first time. And I, I was about, well, let's see, I don't know, 28 at that time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what do you, what happened? Like, you want to tell us, you can be as personal as you want to be like, what, how'd that yeah, story go? I, what happened? You know, it's hard to talk about, but I have written about it because I know that I'm not the only one. And so I do want to be willing to be vulnerable in this. But um, so I had met my first husband in Bible college and we met doing street evangelism together. And um, I just really admired the way he would love these homeless people that we were interacting with um, just very selflessly. And, um, we kind of, we followed all the Christian rules and this kind of relates to my book too, but we followed all the purity culture rules, you know, um, dated for a long time. Um, he was my first kiss, all those things. And so, um, no red flags that anyone saw and we were both Christians. So we had a pretty good marriage. Um, I was a Christian high school teacher and he was in, um, grad school And, but about five years into our marriage, he had his own crisis of faith and he ultimately decided to reject Christ and didn't believe that we had enough in common anymore because, you know, our faith was the core of our relationship. And so he decided to divorce me. Um, and it was just, I don't even know what a good metaphor is, but just like a door slamming in my face. Wow. Um, just completely unexpected. I don't think any of our friends would have predicted that we would be the ones to get divorced. And of course it makes you feel kind of like a failure too. Yeah. Even though I don't believe it was my fault. I just felt like, okay, now I'm one of those divorced Christians. Right. Right. And you've probably heard all of the, uh, you know, the lines that just make me crazy, like, uh, you know, you, there's no difference between the world and the church, right? When it comes to divorce rates, right? So there's those kinds of things that are really, really painful uh, that that people say, right? Oh, yeah. I know people meant well, and and a lot of people were really kind to me during that time, but I definitely had comments that hurt. Um, One of the ones that really hurt for some reason, and even though it made sense, is that people said, well, at least you didn't have kids with him. And, um, that's, that's a good point, you know, that, um, you don't want to bring kids into a divorce, but of course it wasn't comforting to me to hear that at least this, at least basically the, it could have been worse. Um, I realized that the, it could have been worse comments are really hurtful and it made me wonder how often I've been that person, (laughs) right. Um, trying to comfort someone by saying it could have been worse. And so, um, I definitely learned a lot about, how to comfort someone who's suffering while I was going through that because I realized what helped and what didn't. Yeah. What, what did you find? What, what did you find actually helped? 
honestly, just the people who would say, I'm so sorry this happened. And, um, you know, Job's friends in the very beginning of the book where they actually just sit with him in silence for seven days or however long, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, So before they open their mouths and start saying really ridiculous things, there is this moment where they just um, take on, I don't know how to explain it. Um, We'll just sit with him in the pain rather than trying to provide a solution. No one could fix what had happened in my life. Yeah. And I just needed people to acknowledge that it was painful and that it was okay for me to be brokenhearted and, and that it was okay for me to take time to heal. And so I had um, quite a few friends who were just present with me. Um, I remember my friend Miriam, um, she would pick me up from my apartment complex while I was, you know, while I was going through the divorce before it was finalized and we would just go for a drive and she would let me talk and cry. And, um, I knew that my pain was hurting her and yet she didn't make that an issue. She just took it. And, um, I'm still just so thankful for those moments that she gave me where I could unburden. And, um, that's, that's true friendship right there. Yeah. What a gift, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause sometimes you just have to get that out, right? You gotta, you gotta be able to say yeah. it. Wow. Yeah. And not feel like you have to Christianize it. I think one thing that, um, mm-hmm. is really hard when a Christian is suffering is that we often feel like we have to say, but God is good and he has a plan and it's going to be okay. But you know, when you're really hurting, you should be able to just lament. And one thing I learned is that I looked in scripture and I realized that there's so many places in scripture where God's people just cry out and they don't, they don't Christianize it because it's okay to be human. God knows that we're just dust. And I have learned since that time, kind of the art of lament that sometimes our prayers are as simple as God help. Yeah. And that's okay. That's not less spiritual. Uh, we don't have to be eloquent in our prayers. We don't have to impress people. We can just cry out for help sometimes. And often that's when we're truly humble before the Lord. Yeah. Right. Well, God's goal is to have a relationship with us, right? I will be their God. They'll right. be my people. And so even in our suffering, you know, it's, it's inaccurate to interpret our suffering as um, unspiritual, right? So in our suffering, right. if that drives us to him, Exactly. I mean, that's ultimately what he wants anyway. So he he never, even with Job, we look at that conversation that God has with Job sometimes as God putting Job in his place. But I don't think it is. I think God is revealing himself to Job, mm. right, in the middle of his pain and suffering. Same thing happens in Habakkuk and all over the scriptures where mm. God reveals himself. And then the response is, okay, yes, even though this is terrible, um, I'm still going to follow you, right? Because exactly. I've seen you. And so that... That is amazing. How did you see God? Obviously in your friend, but was, did it, mm. how did that shape your understanding of who God was? Well, it was interesting because before um, my ex-husband started, to, you know, going through his crisis of faith, I had been studying the book of Job and writing um, an essay on every chapter. And I, I was almost at the end of a two year study. And I, I can't even tell wow. you why I started it except that I know God knew I needed it. And it was developing this theology of suffering in me that um, I didn't know I'd need. And what I, what I learned through that time is that God can allow great suffering for his children and still love us. That this idea of the prosperity gospel, that if you do good, you'll get good. And if you do bad, you'll get bad. But that's nowhere in, well, I shouldn't say it's nowhere in scripture. There's definitely passages that can be manipulated, right? Um, and have been to support a prosperity gospel. But when you look at the book of Job, when you look at the life of Christ, you see that God loved his son so much and yet allowed him to suffer. And so he can love us and allow us to suffer. So this, these feelings of abandonment that flood in when we're going through a trial, um, they're completely understandable. But what we see in scripture is that God is present with us in suffering. And um, Nicholas Walterstorff wrote this book called Lament for a Son. Have you read that one? I'm aware of it. I haven't read it, though. It's it's incredible. I highly recommend that to anyone listening. But um, he, he just deals with um, lament and pain in a very honest way. But he said that, you know, God doesn't necessarily answer us when we ask why. 
but he suffers with us. You know, you picture Christ on the cross. Um, we, we are understood in our suffering. We are not alone in our suffering. And in a very real and tangible way, God in the flesh knows what it feels like to feel abandoned, to feel persecuted, um, to feel physical pain. All of that became very real to me um, at that time. And those things had just been, I don't know, um, hypotheticals in my life before that. Yeah. But they became very real. Yeah. So you kind of, it sounds like you experienced the Lord's comfort in that, in that time. For sure. And I'm not going to lie. I, I experienced some very dark moments, um, where I wanted to die, um, and just ask God to take me home. And, you know, I actually, for the first time realized how, you know, people can get to a place where they end it because it, it's just like physical suffering where you just want it to stop. The emotional suffering can be so extreme that you just you want to do anything to stop it, but God um, held on to me and protected me from myself. And um, what's been hard is that that time in my life um, kind of changed the chemicals in my brain, and I have struggled with depression ever mm-hmm. since. And it's been something that um, that's been a whole other thing where God has shown me who He is and humbled me um, so that I could receive medication and counsel that. You know, you don't want to be the person who needs that, but I am the person who needs that. And um, that's been a whole nother way that he has met me in my suffering, but it definitely changed who I am today, that period in my life. Wow. Yeah. And it sounds like it changed how you, how you interact with the Lord as well. So like that's. Yeah. And people for sure. Like I can't do the Jesus jukes anymore. (laughs) Um, because when people did them on me, it really didn't help. So that it really humbled me in my interactions with others. Yeah. I think that comes from a a spirit of wanting to help and wanting to offer the Lord, but it just doesn't, it doesn't, it's, you got to acknowledge where you are. Right. And that's, I think we, we have such an anemic theology of lament, like you said earlier, that we don't know how to, how to enter in with people. When that's really, it's the example that God gives us, right? He enters in with us as well. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Man, I love that. Okay. All right. So you go through this really difficult divorce. One thing I wanted to ask you, um, and I'm wondering if this relates to to what you write, but is the whole idea of growing up as a pastor's kid and sort of being, you know, the, I don't know, for lack of a better word, like a, the perfect Christian, right? You kind of do, do, all the, do all the things right. Was there some some shame and stuff associated with all of that that you had to kind of work through as well? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I I really did feel like a failure because um, I felt like a failure and I felt failed. Um, Yeah. Because purity culture, and this isn't something my parents taught me, um, but if you read my book, I talk about the fact that I got it from books that I read in isolation. So all these books we were reading, I kiss dating goodbye. um, Yeah. Uh, God Writes Your Love Story, those kind of books. Um, I read them and kind of internalized certain messages. And the messages that my peers and I internalized was that if you uh, follow the rules of purity culture, then you will receive marriage, great sex, kids, you know, et cetera. And there's sort of this reward system for chastity. And so I hadn't realized how much I'd kind of internalized that. And when my divorce was happening. It felt like this isn't fair. You know, I, I've been, I've tried, of course I was not a perfect wife. I'm absolutely a sinner, but I tried so hard to be a good wife. Um, I tried so hard to be supportive. I tried to obey God in the dating process, in, in the marriage process. And yet my marriage was still failing. And so I think it, it, it caused me to have to grapple with things I'd internalized that I, I hadn't realized I had sort of a, a, prosperity gospel within purity culture. Yeah. Um, that if you're good, you'll get good. And I was getting bad <laughs> for, uh, and it didn't feel like I'd earned that. And so just having to grapple with the fact that God allows suffering for those he loves. Yeah. I have a friend, Tom, you know, Thomas, I don't know if you know Thomas Umstead, but he's written on purity culture hmm. and uh, he calls it, he calls purity culture, um, 
relational prosperity gospel. Which yes, that is so good. That, like, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, which is fascinating. And you described it really well there. Um, so he he's a past guest on the show as well. And everything Thomas says is gold, by the way. So if you guys talk to him, you should. Yeah, I got to look him up. <laughs> you should. But uh, I, yeah, fascinating. So that's, uh, I can totally understand why that would also create a, a crisis of faith. So how, when, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not sure how long that went, but how did that, as you started to maybe look at that in the rearview mirror, how did how did God maybe um, shape you differently, or how did you move on from that? Mm. Well, I think I kind of encountered my crisis of faith when my ex was going through his, because yeah. I had this choice. I felt like it was a choice, and I don't know if this is true or not. Um, but I felt like if I joined him in his um, journey and abandoned the faith with him, that maybe that would cause him to stay with me. Um, and I don't know if it wow. would have, but I, I kind of felt in my heart like I had this very real choice between Christ and my love, yeah. um, my earthly love. And it was devastating <laughs> to to realize that I had to choose. And so that was really where I kind of encountered a few brief moments of, well, maybe I can just sort of compromise this, this, and this and keep my marriage. And God just didn't allow it. Mm. He just, he didn't, he, it didn't sit, it didn't sit right. And he gave me a courage that I can't claim came from me. Um, his Holy Spirit definitely gave me a courage to stand by my convictions. And I remember going to church without my husband um, for the first time. And just the struggle that that was to enter the building and to feel like everyone was wondering where he was. And yet, of course, they weren't because I actually started going to a different church so that I didn't have to deal with that. Right. And yet I still just felt like all eyes were on me and they secretly knew what was happening and that I was wearing this, you know, scarlet d for divorce on my chest and um it it was i would say that my crisis of faith didn't last very long but the impact of that time has transformed my faith and made it deeper um i think i abandoned a lot of the things that i thought were important about being a christian these kind of surface level um extra biblical things that it seemed like such a big deal in Bible college. You know, we'd sit there and debate them for hours. (laughs) Right. Right. Like what? Give me an example. Oh gosh. That's a really good question. (laughs) I feel like I'm going to get in trouble for this one, but that's okay. Um, One of the things that my ex was studying was evolution. And so I joined him in reading some of those books because I was trying to be a good wife. And one of the things I decided was that I wouldn't die on the hill of a literal right. seven day creation. Yeah. Right. <laughs> that might sound to some listeners, they might be like, well, duh. And others will gasp and think I'm a heretic now, but, um, we have a pretty mixed, <laughs> uh, audience. So some of them are a little more okay. progressive. Some of them aren't, but you know, I, yeah, I, I totally hear that. I decided a long time ago, I don't think it matters because I don't think that's what Genesis right. is trying God's to tell the us. Creator. Right. That's yeah. what I, I think. And, and here's the thing. I mean, I, I don't, um, I I respect that some Christians, this is a really big um, deal to them, but where I was at and where my ex was at, I felt like if he needed to believe that in theistic evolution, for instance, that that didn't have to be a deal breaker for us and that I could try to understand where he was coming from. And I think, so things like that, where, you know, I know God created the earth. I don't know how old the earth actually is. And there's conflicting science on that. So I'm not going to die on that hill. That's just an example of one of the things I felt like um, wasn't a gospel issue. Yeah. And I know that's a trite phrase, but you, I think you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Um, and the other thing God really taught me um, since all this happened was just that I need his grace so much. Um, I grew up with really good um, theological teaching. I, and I went to John MacArthur's, uh, college, the master's college. Um, but after my divorce, I went to grad school in Scotland, St. Andrews, and it just, it, it widened my scope of how there can be Christians who view certain theologies very differently, but still love Christ and are still saved. And I know that sounds, again, that might sound so silly, but I really did have such a narrow view of what constitutes a Christian. Um, a very prideful view, actually. 
uh, that you have to believe this, 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 and this, or else you're, you know, a false teacher. And I realized that yes, there are core truths that we cannot abandon. Um, but there are also ways that we can differ and have different, you know, backgrounds and views, um, and still be united in our salvation and love for Christ. And so going to St. Andrews was just a really good experience for me yeah. in that way. I read more widely than I'd ever read before. Um, and I allowed myself to, to consider extravagant grace from God rather than just this idea of a, of me needing to be a rule keeper, um, to secure my standing. I, I started reading, I, I remember I read the Ragamuffin gospel yeah. and by Brennan Manning. And that just, it just blew me away because it was so different from what I'd, um, been taking in my whole life. Um, of just, you know, you need to do this and be this and make sure you read your Bible every day. And I still, you know, agree that I, I'm so much better, um, in my soul when I read my Bible, but, but Brennan Manning brings up just this idea of, of grace that just a reminder that it is Christ who saves. We are not our own savior. And I think I'd fallen into believing that I somehow had to earn favor with God. Yeah. So I can, I think it's Brennan Manning that says um, something about like if your grace doesn't make other people uncomfortable, then you're not believing it right. Like you're not doing it right, you know. Like, <laughs> that sounds like him. Something yeah. like that, yeah. Like you've got a yeah, it's sort of radical grace. Wow, it sounds like was that season. I, I'm really curious why you chose to go there, how that happened, but um, it sounds like that was sort of I don't know if it was healing. Maybe that's the wrong word for me to mm-hmm. apply to it, but it sounds like it was you kind of putting yourself back together, maybe God putting you back together in some way, kind of discovering sure. who you are. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I'm talking about like just the last few years, you know, the yeah. last, um, five to six years were me just, um, I, well, so I was a Christian school teacher and I left my students. I left my job. I left where I was the state I was living in. And I moved back in with my parents after my divorce. And it was just a very humbling time of trying to regather and figure out who I was, um, without my husband and who I was as a Christian. And so what ended up happening is I went to grad school and I, I've always wanted to be a writer and I've always been writing, but I started getting published for the first time, which was just Mm. a really interesting grace that I hadn't expected. And I, um, was able to develop those relationships with publishers and other writers and, um, God has brought me into this place in the last five years or so where I'm getting to do the thing I've always wanted to do. I'm getting to write. And I didn't expect that, but it's been such a kindness. And of course, I didn't think I'd be writing about so many of the things I'm writing about. I've written a lot about divorce and I've written about purity culture and other things. Um, And even my poetry is marked by um, suffering and hope. And so um, I think studying God's grace has been part of the healing process for me. Um, Being willing to be humble enough to accept that I cannot achieve my own salvation. And of course I always knew that theologically and intellectually, but to really accept that um, it is by Christ's merit alone and that there's safety in that. Like if I have a day where I'm not spiritually on and I didn't read my Bible, you know, that doesn't mean that God has um, drifted away from me. He holds me close. And um, it, it's also been a period, like I mentioned before, where I've accepted that I needed some counseling and I needed some medication for my depression. And those things were very humbling because I grew up believing that um, medication and counseling were for people who were just very, very in need, or that if I was depressed, I could fix it through spiritual discipline. Yes. And whatever, that's a, a very dangerous teaching that the wow. church continues to perpetuate, um, that medication is basically like weak faith. Um, so I've had to grapple with some of these things that I believed and have realized since are not true. And I realized that something like medication has actually been God's kindness to me. Yeah. Um, that that is, could be a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> it could be. I bet it could. Wow. I, I love that. I think that's so true. And it's it's sort of another version of that prosperity gospel, right? If you just do all the right things, 
then right. you'll feel right. And you know, that's right. just not, we have bodies and they're chemical right. and there's like, there's, there's things that go into that. Um, you exactly. can do, you can take care of yourself and you should take care of yourself. And so what I hear you describing is what I call the finding yourself in Christ, right? Just mm. being willing to accept yourself and accept his acceptance of you, which is yeah, absolutely. powerful and important. Man, I love that. Okay, so I wanted so you started writing, which is really cool. That's amazing. You get to you get to do that, um, and you write poetry, which is which is amazing. Yeah. Um, is that fun to publish poetry? Like I, and I don't know. It's always kind of. It's oh, an interesting world, isn't it? Is my is my greatest love. So, I do a lot of things. I'm an editor. Um, I write on theology. I'm a painter. I'm a pastor's wife, but. Writing poetry is my my greatest joy and passion, I think, mm. because I found that I can communicate things through poetry that I can't in any other way. And um, the people who read my poetry, it, it's there's this shared, uh, they read the poems I write and have been through different types of pain, but they mm. can take my words and apply them to their own situation. And that is such a powerful, beautiful thing. And so my poems, um, they're not all about, they don't all include Christian themes, but some of them do for sure. But um, I think that it's a way that I have been able to minister to other Christians, actually, in, in a way that I can't through even just writing a blog post or a book. Um, poetry is very powerful. And I don't write the kind of poems that are like a puzzle that you have to solve. I'm, I'm pretty, um, uh, I would say my poems are pretty simple. And so there's humility in that too. Like I don't, tr I'm not trying to impress people with my poems. I just want to honestly deal with what life throws our way and process it and maybe give someone else the words that they don't have. Yeah. Which is the purpose of art, right? That's what it's there exactly. for. Yeah. Well, interesting. Okay. So this one, I'm going to check out two funerals, then Easter. That looks cool. I like, yeah. I like thank that. You. I, I'm really proud of that book. And, um, I hope it blesses people. Yeah, very good. Okay, guys, there's a link to that in the show notes. You guys can check that out as well. But I really want to talk uh, some more. So we've kind of alluded to kind of how your story, but why did you decide to write a book about purity culture? What what kind of inspired you to go? Uh, I've got yeah. to I've got to process this and tell the world what's going on here. Well, um, probably a little bit of crazy caused me to do it. But also, uh, that's a crowd. Like you take them on. It's a, it's an interesting crowd, yeah. right? So I don't, you know, it's funny. I, I don't think of myself as a brave person, but I occasionally get just this desire to tackle something that I know is so controversial. And I, I feel this kind of fearlessness. Then when it comes time to publish it, that's when I start to tremble. But, um, <laughs> yeah. when I was in grad school, I had to pick a thesis topic, um, for my dissertation and I was going to write about lament actually, which is a very needed topic, but at the time I had been, um, I was in relationship. I had friendships and people I was counseling, just, I mean, I'm not a counselor, but just as a friend and in the church, um, who'd been through sexual abuse. And I started thinking about how the books of my youth in purity culture, those books would speak to, or had spoken to women who'd been sexually abused. Um, did it make them feel guilty for things that had happened to them? Did they feel like they were less whole? Did they feel like they had less to offer to um, a future spouse? Those kind of things. And so I decided to reread some of the most popular books of modern purity culture, like late 1990s, early 2000s, yeah. and to analyze those books for themes of how would that, um, how would those messages hit um, or uh, impact a victim of sexual abuse? So that's kind of how this all started is that was my research. And as I started researching and as I finished up my, the program, um, I thought, you know, this is a bigger topic than just this one aspect. Like I want to also dig into how these messages impacted, um, you know, someone who's married now, someone who's still single, someone who's same sex attracted, someone who's infertile, someone who has lots of babies. Just how did these purity culture messages impact us? Which messages were actually cultural and unbiblical mm -hmm. and which were were biblical that we need to keep talking about how can we do better as a church moving forward in the ways that we talk about sexuality yeah so powerful i'm a big believer in that so i've realized i grew up uh sort of 
mid nineties was, you know, mm-hmm. high, high school, early, early and mid nineties. And so we got that, all that stuff. Oh, I, yeah. I never read, I think I kissed dating goodbyes a little bit be after me, okay. but, um, all the others, you know, we got the Josh McDowell, true love waits and oh, yeah. all that stuff. Right. And it's just, mm-hmm. it's interesting to me. I look at it now and I go like the hard part for me is I can go, look, I get the idea. I understand why, why we're, why we're having this conversation, but sure. Uh, why is it so fear-based, right? right? Like it's, it's, it's based on instilling fear in you instead of instilling maturity. So this is my problem, right? It actually stunts growth in Christ right. instead of fosters it. And that's a problem. It, you know, it absolutely does. Because what, what happened is that, first of all, faith was reduced to one thing for te- Christian teenagers. Don't right. have sex before marriage. And we know that, there's so much more to being a Christian. And what is the motivation for following God's sexual ethic? It's not so that you can get all these things later on or so that you don't get STDs and teen pregnancy. Um, if it's just about those things, then it's very works-based. And right. eventually that kind of um, uh, foundation will crumble because if, you know, my peers who went on to say not find someone to marry, if they were, staying abstinent just for the promise of marriage, well, then they didn't get it. So why continue to follow God's sexual ethics? So what was missing in purity culture, among many things, was a desire to worship God. Obedience as worship, not as this insurance of good gifts. And so I wish that purity culture had emphasized the fact that we honor God in our bodies, hearts, minds, and souls in in every way, because we love him and because he saved us and we want to honor his commandments, not because we're just so scared that we're not going to have a good marriage later, you know, um, or that this or that will happen or because our parents will think badly of us. Um, so I think that the motivations for teenagers during that time were very unbiblical. Um, I call them sexy carrots were dangled in front of their faces (laughs) and it has not helped. It has not helped us. You see a generation now of people in their thirties and forties who are very disenchanted, who are asking themselves, wait, why did I even do this? If fill in the blank. And and I could say that I could say, why did I save my first kiss for my first husband? And then he left me five years into our marriage. Right. Right. And so those motivations crumble. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, your marriage is harder than you thought, right? Or it's like it's right. it's actually more work than you know. You were promised all these things of, of great, you know, great sex life, a great marriage, and that's not what it takes. It actually takes work because it's a relationship, absolutely. and you have people. Yeah. And something else I would add too is there was a huge emphasis on virginity, uh, and this idea that like if you can just make it to the altar a virgin, then you're a good Christian. But what that did is that we didn't talk about how uh, sexual purity is a lifelong calling for a Christian. Yeah. So like sexual purity lasts into marriage. Um, You know, there, someone in my book, um, someone I interviewed shared this really fascinating story. She said she wore a purity ring growing up and she gave it to her husband when they got married. And then about a year into their marriage, she was taking a class and she noticed that she was attracted to a man who was not her husband. And she was shocked by this because she thought that once she got married, that that wouldn't ever be a struggle. And so she went home that day and she actually put her purity ring back on. And um, that was kind of a unique take on the purity ring, which is easy to mock, but like, I love the idea that she realized that, that the calling to, to honoring God with our sexuality doesn't end at the altar. Right. Well, even like, so I'm, I have so many questions about that. Like, was, did she feel ashamed of that? Cause that attraction mm. happens to other people. Like that just is part of right. being a human being. Well, but the problem is purity culture preached that marriage was a lust anecdote right? or antidote, right? Uh, that it would, it would solve lust. And so the struggle with lust ends at the altar, which is, which we all know is not true. Um, and also, what about those who never get married? And what about those who are same-sex attracted or divorced or et cetera, et cetera? There's so many scenarios where purity culture did not equip us um, to honor God for our whole lives. 
it was really just about keeping teens from getting pregnant. <laughs> wow. Which again is fear-based and not gospel-based. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh my goodness. All right. That's, that's a, that's There's a really so much there. There's so much. <laughs> that's such a great insight. Um, I just think that's, um, yeah, I'll be thinking about that for a while. Um, okay. And I, the other thing I was wondering about, like the, the whole thing with the sort of idolization of virginity, that doesn't sound Christian at all. It sounds very pagan, actually. It really does. I right? mean, you look at scripture and, and you, that's not what you see. In fact, Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount, he talks about lust being, um, you know, looking at someone with lust is committing adultery, right? Yeah. So the what Jesus lays out is is much more difficult than just staying a virgin. And yet the gospel is also shows us that we're so much more forgiven than purity culture um, allowed for. So you can fail to live up to God's sexual ethic and be forgiven and loved and you're still a whole person. Um, or you can make it to the altar a virgin and you're full of sexual sin in your heart. Uh, we don't probably have time to get into it, but pornography is a whole issue in, in Christianity. There's so many Christians, men and women who struggle with it. I think it was his name, Samuel Perry just came out with a book where he researched this in depth. And it's, it's very discouraging the statistics about how many evangelicals um, struggle with pornography, how many evangelical pastors, even specifically ministers. Um, but one of the the issues I see is that we were taught that there's like this one standard of purity, which is virginity. And then we found all these loopholes, yeah. ways to, right. you know, honor the purity ring and the, the commit, the true love weights, um, signature. Um, but we, that doesn't mean we were sexually pure. Right. Right. Yeah. So perhaps with our, our bodies technically, <laughs> right. But not, uh, not yeah. certainly in our hearts, which is what you're saying. Yeah. I love that. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. That, that is true. Jesus calls us to something more important, doesn't he? More right. valuable. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. And he wants to, he wants to, um, I don't know what the word is. I want to say cure us, but he, he wants to, he wants to save us from that. Right. For sure. Yeah, And he wants our, he wants us body, heart, soul, mind, all of it. Yes. Um, and also acknowledges that we will fail that and that's why he died and rose and lives right um but his calling is actually much more all-encompassing than the purity culture books i read growing up yeah absolutely so that's that's a couple of the things that bother me is the uh, sort of demonization of the body um mm -hmm. and then also the, which then leads to which really is gnostic right it's really this sort it of is, yeah. platonic gnostic kind of thing um under which is friends if you don't know so gnosticism was this heresy that um, basically looked at the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. And so um, w if that's what you think, we I think it's all over evangelicalism um, subtly. So look for that. But as, as if that's what you think, then that's actually heresy, not a biblical worldview, because a biblical worldview has a holistic view of the human being. And so actually starts with the heart exactly. and then moves, moves outward. But it is... Uh, it is, it is important to kind of have that idea. So I hear you saying that, that we should think that way and calling us to it. Yeah. And holistic. one of the chapters in my book is, um, basically how do we live out God's sexual ethic as embodied souls? Yeah. And I think one of the, the first things we have to do is acknowledge to ourselves and to our kids that God created sexuality. So it is good. God called it good. Yeah. Um, sexuality was not the first temptation in the garden and it's not the ultimate sin. Um, it is a good thing and it's how we, how we use it and how we, um, what we do with it that can be beautiful or sinful. And, and I think that's what we need to be teaching our kids. I was just talking to someone recently and I said, you know, we need to tell our teenagers or our kids to expect their sexuality, not to be surprised yeah. by it, embarrassed by it. Like it's coming. <laughs> right. And it's and good. It, yeah, it's yeah. valuable. Wow. Yeah. And I think too, like one of the most beautiful things God teaches us through our sexuality is that our longings um, are often, we can, they can only be met by Christ. So there are aspects of sexuality for every single person, whether you're single, married, same-sex attracted, widowed, what, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, we all have longings that only Christ can meet. And we all have times in our life 
where the longings we have cannot be met physically um, and, you know, still be honoring to God. And I think that's really good for us. I think that um, what if we talk to teenagers more about the, um, the spiritual growth that can take place during periods of unmet longing? Like, what if we taught it that way rather than just get through this so you can get married and then unleash your sexuality on your spouse, which is a whole nother bag right. of crazy that needs to be dealt with. But like <laughs> unmet longings are good for us. They're good for our souls. They're good for our bodies. And we will all, every single one of us experience that in different ways throughout our entire life in the same way that Christ did. And one day we will be with him. We, we will meet him face to face and everything sad will come untrue as a uh, Lord of the Rings, that Lord of the Rings quote. But for now, one of the ways that God draws us to himself is through those unmet longings. Yeah. I love that idea. Embrace the spiritual formation of unmet longings. We need to talk about that more. We do. We absolutely do. Okay. So I'm thoughtful. Like that, that's, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to put that phrase in my pipe and smoke it for a while and uh, just, just toke on that and see what, see what that comes. But that's so true. That is so right. So that goes back to what I'm saying about um, that it really damages people and stunts people's growth. You know, if yeah. we, if we promote a certain view um, wow. Which makes me furious. I want to see people grow. Like I want, I want you to grow full in Christ friends. That's yeah, what you amen. need to be because that's, amen. that's the calling read Colossians. That's all over, all over. Everything. Yeah, all right. Exactly. All you got to do. Uh, okay. Rachel, I have really appreciated this conversation and, uh, just the depth that, that you bring in your story. Thank you for being so vulnerable with us. I appreciate that. Okay. Um, Friends, you can get uh, the book. It is talking back to purity culture. Um, I've got links at halfwaytherepodcast.com, but you can get it any place where uh, great books are found. You know where those places are. Rachel, is there anything you want to leave us with? Um, Jesus is better. Amen. Yeah. I love that. Thanks so much. I think that's enough. Thanks for being here, Rachel. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you.